0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks that Sean Deitch could take a damatori in a fight. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as Talksport Radio and Give Me Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. But above all else, we're fans.
1: Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. And we've had quite the return to Premier League football after the international break, uh, with the title race, the battle for top four, and the relegation dogfight all still hanging in the balance. At the top of the table, Manchester City and Liverpool both cleanly dispatched their opponents 2-0 to keep the gap between them at a point, while slightly further down, a calamitous game week of football saw Chelsea lose 4-1 at home to Brentford, Arsenal lose 3-0 away to Palace, Manchester United scurrying away from their own ground with a point, and Spurs punishing Newcastle 5-1 down at the bottom end of the table meanwhile Everton continued their poor run of form with a loss to West Ham which has done, done something very interesting actually it's made Wednesday's game against Burnley now a massive game for both sides and who who would have thought that this Frank Lampard Everton against uh, Sean Dyke's Burnley side would be a, a really exciting game to, to look forward to um, but with all that and more to get into let's jump straight in with a look at the title challenges starting with Liverpool.
0: Yeah so I think um you know, we, we've, we've ummed and ah over Liverpool this season about whether or not they were going to be really challenging for the title. And, well, they're, they're definitely in this fight now. They're only one point behind Man City on the same amount of games played, and they've won um, their last five games. So it's, um, it's definitely an exciting time to be a Liverpool fan. I think, um, you know, the, the main question now is, can City hold on, or will Liverpool have enough in the tank?
1: Yeah, and what's funny is when we had the conversation at the very start of the season, or just before the start of the season, in fact, when we had our predictions about who was going to win the league, we both looked at Liverpool and Man City, and I think... I think we both went for Chelsea to win, but we both looked at Liverpool and Man City and went, these two teams are about the same strength, but the AFCON is going to have the effect, it's going to slow Liverpool down. And weirdly, if anything, the AFCON and also the World Cup qualifiers has done the reverse. Liverpool, since those tournaments and during those tournaments, have won 10 games in a row, which is the opposite of what I think we all thought would happen and and what would be the logical thing to happen. Instead, they've had players come in, um, like, not so much come in in terms of Yossi, because he's been good throughout the season, but definitely stepping up to fill that that role uh, in Salah's absence, Luis Diaz of course coming in as well and doing really well um, a lot of players have stepped up to to fill the gaps that were left and it's interesting because you look at Liverpool at the moment and at the start of the season they were very much a team that was that had a lot of good players but were defined by how good Mohamed Salah was he was absolutely going nuts scoring for fun at least scoring one in pretty much every game I think uh, and often scoring two or three and now he's looking a little bit out of form relative to you know his lofty standards he's still doing well but relative to the how he was doing of the season but they're not slowing down as a result of it they're not losing games and they're not you know there are some teams in the league I'm thinking specifically of someone like for example Spurs when, when Harry Kane doesn't have a good game sometimes Spurs can really struggle or or you know there are plenty of outfits like that so for Liverpool to not be having Mo Salah's best football and still be winning all these games and have 10 on the run it, is really really encouraging and it's it's interesting as well because and we'll get onto this in a minute they play each other on the weekend and that's going to be you know potentially whoever wins that wins the whole thing
0: yeah definitely going to be an exciting one and I know I'll be watching and I'm sure you will be as well um yeah I think uh, the main difference seems to have been that um these players that we weren't sure how they were going to fit in whether or not they were going to be the difference makers in terms of adding depth to the squad I'm thinking you know Tiago Alcantara and um Yota just have been quite good um, they've settled in, it took them a little while, um, probably Thiago more than Diogo but but um, they're looking like really handy additions and um, they just are going from strength to strength in a way that I would say Man City aren't. Um, they're still winning games, they're still looking comfortable, but they it's peppered with a, a, draw, a draw here and there, a loss here and there. Um, they're not as consistent as Liverpool seem to be at the moment.
1: No, and it's it's hard to get as consistent as 10 wins in a row. Precious few teams ever managed to do that, um, so much less this season. I mean, let's talk about Diogo Iota for a little bit because he has scored in this game his 20th goal of the season in all competitions. He scored a goal that you wouldn't expect from a guy who stands at about 178 centimetres, I think it's like five. Nine, five, ten, maybe. He's not massive. Um, and he just has this great leap on him, it was a fantastic header. It was a really good cross also for Joe Gomez, which was um I saw uh something saying that a lot of the Liverpool substitutes were like razzing Trent Alexander Arnold on the bench, being like, It's not you that's good, it's the position and the way that position is set up. Um, because it was just a fantastic cross that again, I didn't think Joe Gomez had in his locker. But really, really impressive from Yocht to score that goal. And you know, when they signed him. I think we all looked at Diogo Yota and went, that guy, he's a solid player, you looked at him in much the same way that you might look at to sort of look at another Wolves player, someone like a Daniel Pedence, maybe, and you went, this guy's good, he has the occasional performance, a little bit patchy, um, but maybe he'll be sort of like uh, an Oxlade-Chamberlain over there and sort of get more playing time and play with better players so look better on occasion, but I expect him to be a bit of a squad player. And now he's not going to be the first name of the team sheet, but he's, you know, because there are so many players like Alisson and Van Dijk and Salah and Alexander rolls who, who you can't ever drop, but he's in that conversation.
0: He is. Yeah. And I think, um, well, I mean, I agree with you that, you know, there was definitely a question around whether or not he was going to be able to, to take it up to the next level. But, um, you know, I was looking at his, his last season at Wolves, he got 16 goals and, and six assists in like 37 appearances. So, you know, that's that's not to be sniffed at um that's really quite good uh so you know in in a, in a a team where he's getting more chances, I guess it makes sense that he's scoring more goals. He definitely flew under the radar to me at that point. I mean, I knew he was a good player, but I didn't think he was that good that that statistic just kind of passed me by I guess I didn't think he was that much of a prolific goal scorer um but yeah he he looks like he's really added a complementary aspect to Liverpool's attack. Um, seems like a really clever addition. He can play anywhere across the front line. So he fits in really well if any one of Salah, Firmino or Mane wants to get taken out. And what that means is, you know, we're kind of worried that maybe it would create a little bit of unhealthy competition because you almost just don't want to touch something that's working so well. But because he can go anywhere, it, it works perfectly because Liverpool have more games than they can then they're able to play those front three of Salah, Mane, and Firmino? So they need someone else to come in at times, and Yotta just apparently can drop in as and when he needs to, pretty much all over that front three, and works a treat.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I, look, I think it's it's a fair point. Uh, well I think it cuts both ways the whole sort of like he had a really good final season at Wolves and you would expect uh, you know a player who has a good scoring record to go into a team that makes more chances and score more goals but on the other hand you know firstly you look at this goal and it was a really good cross but he still had to deliver a really good header so it's a it's a chance but you've still got to perform well to get to it and secondly you look at the team we're about to talk to talk about in a second Manchester City you know Jack Grealish has been playing a fair amount there I think he started 18 games of the 30 they've played so far and played 20 of them but He has got two goals and two assists this season. Now, I actually think he's been, you know, some people are saying he's been way worse than he actually has been because a lot of what he's been doing is not directly goals and assists. But I think that he is definitely underperforming relative to what people are expecting. I think people look to how he's playing for Aston Villa and going, wow, when he goes into the city side, if he plays enough games, he'll really be hitting that next level. Um, So I think it you know logically on paper it makes sense to go player does well for team that's not as good as his new team therefore in his new team he'll do really really well um it doesn't always play out like that in practice
0: yeah that's true I, I would say though that I think the role that Yotta plays at Liverpool is slightly closer to the role that he played at Wolves you know at Wolves he was he was also given kind of free range of of the attacking midfield he was allowed to stay up so that Wolves could hit on the counter. He wasn't always forced to track back. And that's the same at Liverpool. He's allowed to play high. Um, so I think the role that Jagarus has now at City is is quite different to the role that he had, where he was literally the creator of everything um that went through that Aston Villa kind of creative hub in, in attack. So, yeah, I agree, you're absolutely right. It's definitely not a, a hard and fast rule that like, you know, you you score some goals here, you'll score more there, but I think there are enough differences that you you could imagine that it would be different for for Grealish than for Jota. Jota.
1: I think very true. Well, just before, because there's an overarching question I want to ask you about these two teams, and I'm sure you and and the listeners can guess what sort of question that's going to look like. But moving into Manchester City, who beat Burnley 2-0 here, a very sort of, two very clinical wins as well. Neither team sort of set the world alight, but it's that old sort of, now this is a footballing adage I do like, the sort of like, when you play badly (laughs) and win games, that's championship form. Not that either side play badly, but it's not like you know five nils on either side against these two sort of lower table it's a sides. Day at the
0: office you <clears> get in nine <throat> o'clock, you do the work. It's not thrilling. You're out of five on the dot.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, another really good performance from Manchester City. Kevin De Bruyne on twelve goals so far this season, um, which is you know all right numbers. It's not ridiculous, but four goals in his last four games. He's not usually known for this. And just for context, his best ever goal scoring season for Manchester City saw him score 13 goals in the league and there's eight games left. But other than that, 13 was, was actually a little bit of an anomaly. Um, in his other seasons, he scored seven goals, six goals, eight goals in the 1890 season. He only scored two league goals, 2020, 21. He scored six goals. And at the moment, as, as I mentioned, he is on 12. Um, and not to say that that's ever been an important part of his game, and even if he doesn't score another goal for the rest of the season, he will still have a huge impact, but it's just terrifying to think about a player who has been so good since he joined Man City, and even before for, for Wolfsburg, adding another dimension to his game at this stage.
0: It's pretty it's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I think I would say he has had moments where you know he's, he's come into pockets of form and scored a few goals in a row, and I almost think that this points more to just the... The awesome power of Man City's, you know, attacking machine, which is that it seems like quite a few of their attacking players tend to go on these these runs in form. We've seen it with Riyad Mahrez before. We've seen Sterling get quite a few in a month. We've, um, you know, we've seen it happen quite a lot. Phil Foden, for example, can can have a blinding couple of weeks. It almost feels like, based on how players are are, are playing in terms of form. City can almost rotate their tactics to to get the most out of them to make sure that player that's in form is arriving in the box to get the chances Um, that I don't know if that's something that you would agree with, but that's almost what it feels like to me.
1: Yeah, I do think that's true, and people do go on runs. I just think it's important to make the distinction that, you know, we look at this game as a 2-0, or there are other games. The one that jumps to mind immediately is um, when City played Chelsea earlier this season, and he scored the only goal. Sometimes you can look at a player who scores a hatful of goals in a team like this and go, like, Sterling is is a classic one for this, does it a lot of the time, where it's like, yeah, they'll score X amount of goals, but it'll be like the fourth and fifth goal in a 6-0. And De Bruyne was doing that a little bit earlier in the season, but has had quite a few occasions this season where he scored, like, one goal in, like, a 1 or 2-0 or scored two goals in a three or four nil or something so he's not just sort of filling his boots when the game's already gone
0: definitely not absolutely kevin de bruyne is a uh, a game winner <laughs> um i think everyone would, would agree with you there yeah absolutely he's he's able to elevate city above whatever they're playing at just with a moment um and that is what separates the best players as well some might call world class um but i think maybe we have slightly different definitions
1: Well, so despite that, despite the goals from Kevin De Bruyne, despite the goals from Riyad Mahrez, he's been doing really well this season, Phil Foden as well, do City have enough? It's the big question to get over the line without a striker. A couple of months ago, we thought that the league challenge was done and dusted. Manchester City were 14 points clear at the top of the table. And now that has been reduced to one point, due in part to, you know, that 10-game winning streak that we talked about with Liverpool, but also Manchester City dropping the odd game here and there, losing to Spurs, drawing with Southampton. Who wins the league now?
0: It's a really interesting one, and you know, if if I've got a, are you going to push me for an answer? Is that you, you, is that you, you can be doing?
1: vague if you'd like, but if you want to declare one side or the other, that's that's allowed too.
0: Well, look, okay, I, I think definitely Liverpool have the edge in terms of psychological advantage and also in terms of um, momentum. Um, if you look at the the results, I mean, as you've already said, I think they're both still in Europe. Um, City got a couple of quite easy games. Um, they're playing. They're playing Liverpool, obviously, so that's going to be huge. Um, but then towards the end of the season, they've got Brighton, Watford, Leeds, Newcastle, Aston Villa, and West Ham, and that's that's quite a gentle set of fixtures. Um, and Liverpool have. Let's have a look. We've got Man United, Everton. I mean, regardless of where Everton are derby vacuum whatever that's still uh, going to be a hard
1: <laughs> as we always say derby's happening in a vacuum yeah
0: <laughs> um tottenham and then they've got newcastle and villa like liver like man city but both away from home um and then wolves and and southampton i almost feel like they're fair there's a bit of parity there it might come down to who wins on on the weekend
1: it's it's definitely looking that way because on the one hand yeah Liverpool are in such good form that although you've named a lot of difficult fixtures there like Manchester United at Anfield do I am I giving them the time of day in my head not really you never know but but not really Newcastle United away could be difficult they've improved a lot recently but at the same time Tottenham I think could be the big one I mean Tottenham are quite good at despite when they're Even when they're not that great, they'll let lose to Burnley and then beat Man City in back to back games. So I could see that happening. I also, I mean, what would be really exciting is if we get down, obviously, no matter what happens, if we get down to the final day of the season, Wolves as the final day of the season, that could be a really nerve wracking game because you're trying to break that deadlock. You're trying to break that deadlock. Maybe the players start to get inside their head a little bit if it's nil nil at half time and they're thinking, oh God, oh, we're going to bottle it. Oh, it's going to be another one of those years. And, and that sort of, you know, feeds into itself and they can't manage to make it work.
0: Yeah, sure, and then City will be playing Villa, who also, you know, don't mind a good upset. So it, it's going to be a fun end of the season um, match to watch for for both. Um, yeah, I, I think it sounds boring to say whoever wins on the weekend could well take it away. My my, I'm I'm leaning maybe like fifty five percent towards Liverpool.
1: I I'm gonna say I'm leaning towards Liverpool as well on the basis that. Firstly, I I just think that with the Champions League, as we've mentioned, they're both in the Champions League. Assuming they both continue to get through and they're playing really well and they're two of the best teams there, I kind of feel like if you get to a point where you have to choose, Liverpool would choose the league and City would choose the Champions League. And so on the strength of that alone, which I know is not a great be-all and end-all reason to do it, but I, I, I would lean towards Liverpool on that basis.
0: It's a really good point. The reason I'm picking Liverpool, and I agree with that, but it didn't factor into my argument at the time. The reason I picked Liverpool is just that it feels as if they are, I would say, more more dangerously consistent. And obviously, again, it sounds dumb—the ten ten wins on the trot. But I just I could just see them winning all of these games that I've just read out. And I'm looking at cities, I don't feel the same way.
1: Yeah, and also like the conversation we just had about those two teams in isolation. It's like you look at how well City are doing. And it's linked to Kevin De Bruyne scoring a lot of goals, which he's not usually doing. Mares, who I think is a fantastic player, but he's sort of in and out of the side. Foden as well, he's been very inconsistent. So it's almost like they're overperforming relative to, to what what's actually happened, like what, what you might expect from someone like KDB, for example. Whereas on the other hand, you look at Liverpool and it's like, well, they're winning all these games, dot, 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 despite the fact that Mo Salah isn't at his best at the moment. So when, when you think about those and you imagine sort of everything returning to what it's supposed to be normally, which obviously... You can never say in football, but imagine that for a second, you would then give the edge to Liverpool.
0: Very true. City's penultimate game of the season away at West Ham. That's going to be really tough.
1: Yeah, yeah, especially if West Ham are still fighting for maybe Absolutely. top four, but but you know certainly the European position. Europe. So we'll see.
0: All to play for, and uh, yeah, all all eyes will be on uh, this Sunday's fixture.
1: Let's look at the next game. Uh, a big upset here. Uh, Chelsea won, Brentford four. Uh, a really strange game because uh, you could say that this game sort of just got away from Chelsea. But even before the first goal, it looked to me, I don't know if you agree, but it just looked like Brentford were looking the livelier side. They had three really good chances that Ivan Tony sort of wasn't quite able to convert. Um, and to the point where, like, when Rudiger scored that fantastic goal, which um, I'm sure you've seen the stat, but it was Chelsea's longest range goal in 15 years. Um, they immediately responded. They didn't let it put them out. A lot of the time when a team gets scored against, sort of against the run of play, that can really sort of dishearten them. But Brentford, if anything, were like, you know, emboldened to go, well, hang on a second, that's not how this is supposed to go. We've been the better side so far, so take one of these, and immediately responded.
0: They did. And, you know, they absolutely deserved to win that game, and also probably deserved to win by that margin. They they took Chelsea apart and I wonder if it was just a case of Chelsea having Survived when they maybe shouldn't have done it in the first few minutes and then scoring just lulled them into a false sense of security and they felt like, oh, well, you know, we are probably going to win this game, aren't we? It's Brentford. Um, you know, we're in better form than them, etc. And they just switched off and Brentford punished them. And, you know, by the time Chelsea were trying to rally, Brentford were already, momentum-wise, just so so far ahead of them that they they ran away with it.
1: It was an uncharacteristically bad game for, I mean, I say a couple of Chelsea players. There are some players, you look at like Timo Werner, for example, and he had a stinker, but at this point, who's a prize. Kai Havertz is so in and out. Sometimes he looks like he's threatening to become a good player. Sometimes he's not. So I wasn't that surprised. The one that really shot me was N'Golo Kante. I've, seen him look a little bit below his absolute peak, you know, the sort of the league winning Kante we see all the time. But in this game, I think he was like largely at fault for the um the Brentford second goal when he just comes across and really overcommits when there's already a Chelsea player and leaves Ericsson completely free. And I was like taken aback when I, I like did almost a full double take when I saw it was Kante doing that. And I was like, that is overcommitting and sort of panicking is not normally your thing.
0: Yeah, it was weird. I agree. Uh, I mean, I think this is definitely the I think this is the first time that Chelsea was set up with three in midfield of Kante, Loftus-Cheek and Mount. And Loftus-Cheek was kind of playing in in the middle of those three. And I wonder if Kante's is just used to having a more defensive minded player, someone like Jorginho, who even isn't the best defensive player, as I'm sure you would agree, but was maybe just a bit more of a natural positioner like he mm. like has better positioning for that role of of deepest lying um centre midfielder and yeah kante was maybe a bit mixed between am i the am i the ball chaser am i the the positional defensive midfielder got caught out i agree he looked very flat he didn't look like his his normal self and i do think kante does not look as good in general in in a three man midfield um when he's not pushing up quite high Sounds like a weird thing to say, but I feel like when Chelsea have played with three in midfield, he's looked really good, almost playing as a semi kind of right centre mid, right midfielder.
1: mm Yeah. No. I. I can definitely see that because if he plays at the base without someone sort of cooperating with him in the same, but he might see like a Kovacic or, or a Jorginho doing it, 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 it. He has a game like this. It looks like.
0: Yeah. It definitely. Uh, I agree with you that he looked. He looked off the pace, as did um, quite a few players. Marcus Alonso also had. Um, a uh, customarily bad game. Um Mason Mount didn't look particularly good. I don't think Loftus-Cheek was fantastic. I think everyone just just looked a little subpar and it's hard not to wonder how much recent events at Chelsea are having an impact on their psychology, but yeah, as it was, they struggled.
1: Well, this is the interesting deeper question because it's, you know, when a game like this happens, you always have to ask the question, which is like is it just one of those freak Premier League moments, and everybody gets one, and that's why something like a ten-goal winning, a ten-game winning streak is so impressive? Because you kind of have to account for, in the same way that like a pub accounts for breakage, and are just like, well, some of these glasses are going to break. You kind of have to account for Premier League chaos. There's always going to be the chance that you get smashed for one out of nowhere, and some sort of like you know Premier League year spirit pres- like possesses the other team, and they play out of their minds. But then I was sort of looking at the games that Chelsea have played since the sanctioning news came out, and the first one they played was um, against Burnley, where they—sorry, w- against Norwich rather, um, where they won three-one. And they played very well there. They then played against Newcastle at Stamford Bridge and sort of narrowly got past them 1-0. It was that game that we looked at where Kai Havertz got that goal and was sort of lucky to maybe be on the pitch. And it was a good goal, but like Newcastle could have felt a little bit hard done by. They then played yeah. against Lille, where they had already got a 2-0 advantage, but got by 2-1. They played Middlesbrough in the FA Cup quarter final and Middlesbrough obviously a league below, then only beat them 2-0. And now against Brentford, it's 4-1. And I think it's going to be really interesting now to see what Chelsea do tomorrow against Real Madrid because so far they've had an easier run of games than you might expect, but not necessarily decisively beaten any of them. Even against Norwich, for example, they conceded.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't think that Chelsea have been in particularly good form for a while. It's almost been yeah, surprising that they've been able to to keep getting the wins. So I think that they could well come unstuck. Uh, Real Madrid are in okay form they obviously lost 4-0 to barcelona um a couple of weeks ago but beat Celta Vigo away um this weekend i think that romad Real could really stun them or they could also find themselves in a in a similarly bad position and it could be one of those games that that really disappoints where you're expecting you know two big teams to have two big performances and it kind of just peter's out
1: mm yeah no it, it definitely could be kind of like um Liverpool Real Madrid was last season when Liverpool were sort of not looking at their best until like the final four weeks of the season weirdly and somehow got third
0: yeah could be um could even be I, i'm i'm no I, i'm hoping that sunday man city vs liverpool will actually be a good game but they would just be classic wouldn't it if it was just like a really boring like 0-0 or 1-1
1: a really sort of like conservative, both teams not wanting to lose, but also yeah, yeah. not wanting to, like not risking it to win. Yeah, no, I think, It'll be interesting to look what happens with Chelsea now, because again, another really big game that they have coming up down the line is the rescheduled fixture against Arsenal. Um, and, you know, when we talk about this top four race, there's Chelsea in it now, uh, whether they like it or not, they haven't been picking up as many points they'd like to. And that third position is probably theirs, but it's not locked in. If both Tottenham and Arsenal go on a run, it could be Chelsea, who you'd have thought were a lock for top four, who end up in fifth place. So if they lose that game against Arsenal at the bridge, which usually is kind of unthinkable for Chelsea... If that happens, though, they could be in a bit of trouble.
0: Absolutely. I mean, in the same way that I was kind of looking down that Liverpool fixture list and thinking they could probably win all of these, to look at Chelsea's ones, you know, even, um, you know, this weekend, Southampton away from home, despite the fact that Southampton are in really bad form, you just kind of wonder if they'll smell blood in the water and and go for it because they need a win, they need a result, and beating someone like Chelsea would help galvanize them. Um, You know, they've got Leicester still to play. They've got Manchester United away. Um, they've got Wolves again. Um, they're playing Everton at a time where Everton will really be needing to to pick up points, and that's at Goodison Park. So, yeah, I, I don't know how how successful they'll be towards the end of the season if they don't have a an uptick in form.
1: Yeah, really interesting, and and a team that are definitely not safe from uh, from being knocked out of the top four but before we go into our next two teams that are also in that top four race and you might say there are, there are even three or four more teams in the top four race um, depending on what your view of uh, you know United's ability to turn things around are or West Ham's ability to, to pick up more points uh, but in the meantime let's go for a little bit of useless trivia and I have uh, in honour of the World Cup draw which we'll also be getting onto later uh, chosen something to do with the World Cup because I've uh, I've come down with a, a terrible case of World Cup fever re- recently um, and that's uh, talking about World Cup appearances and none the way you might think. So we've all heard of the rare case of players that have represented two different nations at World Cup. Uh, Ferenc Puskas famously did it for both Hungary and Spain after immigrating from Hungary uh, You know, du- during during his period of time playing because of um, the, uh, the revolution there. Um, and there are even some players that have played for more than two national sides. Alfredo Di Stefano, for example, played first for Argentina, then for Colombia, and finally qualified for a World Cup at age 36 with Spain. But there's only one player who's ever actually represented three different nations at World Cup tournaments, that being Dejan Stankovic, who played for all three of Yugoslavia, Serbia and Montenegro, and Serbia.
0: Well, there you go. That's a, that is a pretty cool statistic. I mean, I definitely, I'd come across the Di Stefano one before, um, but had never thought that there would be ones in more recent memory. It almost feels like something that, you know, would happen in kind of the, the 50s and 60s when The the international associations were a little a little gentler. But yeah, I guess uh, the reformation of countries in the the 90s uh, will do that. Pretty cool.
1: Yeah, very, very very cool indeed. Um and you know, you you wonder if there'll ever be something like that again. I mean FIFA are so much more strict now and anyone's sort of like switching allegiances once you've played a competitive game and even more so once you've played a competitive game at like a FIFA tournament. Um so probably not, but you know, an an interesting record to have for Dejan Stankovic, uh, an illustrious honor indeed.
0: It it is illustrious um def- well, uh Interesting honour to have, for sure. Um, my my statistic I came across, which I just quite liked, I thought I'd share with you, I thought I'd share with our, our listeners, is that um, Port Vale are the only club in the English football pyramid, so the 92 clubs that make up um, the English football leagues, um, to have beaten every single other club in the pyramid. So all other 91 teams have been defeated by Port Vale at some point in their career, their their club's history.
1: That's that's one of those hilarious stats. It's a bit like um whenever you read those stats about like who's the only player to have ever scored a hat trick in the Champions League and also League One and it's like some guy and you're like, yeah. Is that, is that good is that cool? Is that good? <laughs> or <laughs> you know
0: it's it's definitely a, a double edged sword, isn't it? You know, they've they've played everyone, but they've also beaten them.
1: Well it's like I I can't wait for Ronaldo over at Manchester United to eventually have the records for like most goals scored in the Champions League campaign, most goals scored in the Europa League campaign, and most goals scored in the Europa Conference League campaign.
0: <laughs> Ronaldo, most most goals scored in in the championship. Imagine that in a season. <laughs>
1: I mean i would say for years I want him to do that. I want him to go to like either him or Messi. Uh, it's probably probably too late now, but I think it would just be great to see them at like age 40 just ripping it up in a slightly lower league just to get these hilarious records. Do you think Messi would
0: score more than 30 goals if he played this season for a a championship club?
1: I think, I think the real answer for Messi is probably no, just because I think if he played at a, at a championship club, he would just get diced to bits. Um, so unless the referees were really on it, I think he would, like, he'd get the ball, he'd try and dribble through, like, four players like he used to at his peak, and someone would just go straight through the back of him, and the ref would be like, didn't see nothing.
0: Yeah, well, as in, cause, cause like, you know, referee still remembers that five minutes earlier, he like mugged off like four different players and like put them on their, on their backsides and like megged them. And the ref's like, you know what, that, that's just what you get in the championship.
1: I mean, I mean, maybe that. I was just talking more about the uh, the terrible stand officiating in England, plus like oh, right. some of the very heavy tackles we see in the Championship, uh, and also like the pitch quality and stuff like that. But I think Ronaldo would have a better chance doing it in a lower league, just because I think he's, he's just more physical. Yeah. more physical, which I think is going to lend itself more to that kind of thing. Um, but I'd love to see them both try.
0: It'd be an interesting one for sure. I, I think I think Messi would get twenty five if if he played like a an appropriate number of games. Like, if he played 30 games, I think he could get 25-plus goals.
1: Yeah. I th- well, I think it depends on the manager as well. If it was, like, Big Sam, he'd be like, right, lump it in the box. And Messi would be like, but boss, I am five <laughs> Messi, foot nothing.
0: I've heard, I've heard you're a good goal scorer. Get your head on it, son.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that would be, that'd be the best fit for him. Um, that's, a, that's
0: a fair point, yeah. Uh, let's not get too tied down by uh, the hypotheticals. Let's talk about what really happened, which is Tottenham beating Newcastle 5-1.
1: Yep, a really dominant performance from Spurs, uh, and a really good run for Spurs at the moment. Um, they have five wins in their last six, um, following their loss to Burnley. They've gone on a really good run, um, picked up a lot of points, picked up a lot of difficult points as well. Obviously, they, they lost to Burnley, but they beat City just before that. Um, and, and you look at them in sort of the contenders for top four at the moment, and you look at the fixtures they've got left at the moment, and, and you kind of think that this is the kind of situation that you know Antonio Conte and maybe this isn't the case because at the time that he was hired it seemed like a sort of a weird marriage of convenience like they needed a manager who had a name and he needed a club that had a name but it looks like perfect for him this situation where he's good at really grinding out the results he can help them to some degree there's always going to be that Spurs element of doing that and of course the Premier League element of doing that but avoiding those obvious stumbling blocks I think probably at the moment if I had to call a favorite it would be Spurs to finish fourth place.
0: Do you think so? As in just, just based on their current form, you think they're going to be able to maintain it? Um, or you think that Arsenal have lost a little bit of the sheen that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where we, we lumped them in with, um, I think it was the Wolves who are in a good reign of form. Is it is it a loss of, of confidence in Arsenal or...?
1: It's, a, it's yeah. a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Well, one of the big things about it is, I, I read today that Kieran Tierney is out for the rest of the season. Which, I won't go too, in, too much into this now, because we've got a whole bit about Arsenal and their game against Crystal Palace the other day. But I think without Kieran Tierney, and if Nuno Tavares is having to play, Arsenal are just in big, big, big trouble. I think that they're going to lose a lot of games on the strength of that player not being in there. Um, but he, He's let's... very
0: important for the dressing room as much as he is for his on-the-pitch performances, you know, his energy in the back line is is crucial
1: absolutely but back on Spurs I mean I think also the thing with Spurs is we're getting to the back end of the season we are getting to that point in the season where and again we'll come on to this in a bit like players are getting injured players are getting knackered we're seeing some tired performances um, and Spurs made the really really smart decision of picking up a couple of players in the January window to inject new blood to really sort of lift the squad provide some new you know options and Dan Kulusevsky has come in and has been the real sort of like headline grabber I think he's got five assists in 2022 which is more than any of a player in the Premier League over the same period uh, and, and Rodrigo Bentancur as well who has been a really handy addition I wouldn't go as far as say he's been great but he's been good he's been fresh legs in the midfield he's been you know definitely an improvement over someone like a Harry Winks playing um, and it feels like even though Conte sort of bemoaned their window and bemoaned the squad after January and was going oh this isn't good enough those two players in addition to what they already had has really helped boost them and you just look at a game like this where and it you know it was a very easy reporting for. Every to to make, because it is an obvious point, but it is a true point. In a game when Tottenham score five goals, but Harry Kane hasn't scored any of them, it, it starts to suggest that a club that, just earlier in this very podcast I was saying, is over-reliant on one player, is starting to move a little bit away from that over-reliance.
0: Well, I, I think the only thing I would say is that, yeah, Harry Kane was the best player on the pitch, and did you know directly create I think three of the goals. Um... He, he,
1: he did, he had a great game, but before like you know we've seen a lot of games where you know harry kane dropping back and being a 10 is a a fantastic example of this a lot of the time harry kane will do that thing where he creates a lot of goals and if it's not hyung min son to finish it off or hyung min son to you know take a really good through ball and then lay it off basically on a plate for someone it doesn't matter it's just a great great bit of creation harry kane so he can now afford to drop back into that creator role at times still play very well without sacrificing the only goal scoring threat that spurs have aside from hyung min son because you have these other players who are now Coming in, this use of wing backs with Emerson Royal and Matt Doherty today was really, you know, um, a great example of that of this goal scoring coming from different areas. So I, I think re- relying over reliance on him specifically is maybe the wrong way, but reliance on his goals as compared to his performance.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think, um, yeah, they probably still will have the problem that if Harry Kane is not performing well or injured, they'd still really struggle. But I agree with you that. You know, they, they have at least one more string to their bow, which is that, you know, it doesn't need to be Kane polishing them all off, um, which is which is, yeah, encouraging for sure. And um, it definitely looks like Conte has managed to get the get the cogs firing, the, the pistons working. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think beyond this weekend's fixture of um, Liverpool versus Man City, the second biggest one before the end of the season is probably going to be Tottenham versus Arsenal, which happens the uh, the third last game of the season.
1: Yeah, and another one there that is probably going to decide who finishes fourth place, whoever wins out of those two, because I, I can't see either side pulling pulling ahead massively over the course of their fixtures. Liverpool do also have Tottenham, as you mentioned, which is a game that could really go either way. It's not You know, like a lot of teams that Liverpool can just steamroll Tottenham do have the ability to beat teams that they shouldn't. They've beaten City home and away this season, you know, as we know. Um, So that will be another really interesting one. So two really, really interesting back-to-back, I might add, games. There's five days between them, so that will definitely have an an impact as well.
0: I've heard them call six-pointers, Cam.
1: They they are indeed six points, especially the north on Derby. Um. So so yeah, a really 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 interesting thing for Spurs. If I had to put that question to you again, out of Tottenham and Arsenal, <laughs> assuming that I mean maybe maybe West Ham or Man United will sort of wiggle in and steal for who finishes higher out of these two teams at the moment.
0: In my opinion, mm-hmm. um, I mean they've both got tricky ins. I, I, I'm going to pick Spurs just because of Antonio Conte. Yeah.
1: I well, think, I think. I
0: think he seems to have given them an extra dimension. He seems to have turned a corner, dare I say it, touch wood for Spurs fans. Um, I I think that I've just got a lot of confidence in him as a, a manager. And if I'm looking at him versus Arteta, which it could well come down to as kind of a, a deciding point, it's it's got to be Conte, doesn't it?
1: Well, the, yeah, exactly. This is the thing where when you look at why people get an experienced manager's Conte has been in several situations where he's got to grind it out to the last day of the season before. Mikel Arteta, conversely, the two seasons he's managed so far have both kind of been like, well, you're not really playing for that much. You're eighth. You're out of all the this and that. So you kind of just the FA Cup, obviously, in the first season when he when he took over was most of that run was under the the sort of representation of a different manager, so it was sort of getting out just the last bit. But the sort of start to finish grinding the whole way is not something that Arteta has had to experience yet, whereas Conte's done this time and time and time again. And on the strength of that, I mean, you could say it goes both ways. There could be an element of the fearlessness of youth in in Arteta's arsenal that, that means they're able to sort of like play ambitiously. But I think between the experience of the manager and also the sort of squad depth in terms of the fact that you know, Tottenham didn't really lose uh, any players aside from Dele Alli. Unless there's someone else I'm forgetting. Did they lose anyone else over January? I think they just saw Dele Alli. Um, I think you're right. N- no one else is jumping to mind anyway, because they've still got Ziv Bergwine, more Kulusevski, obviously we mentioned, Heung-min, Son. They've got so many different options there to go behind Probably Harry bad. Kane. Uh, yeah, Hoiberg as well. So loads and loads of players to, to support in that area, whereas Arsenal, you know... Already, things are looking a little bit dangerous with some of the injuries they've got. If they start to get even more having to play really intensely in these games, it, it could get really, really bad for Arsenal. Um, and on that note, let's talk about Arsenal. <laughs> in fact, no, sorry, I've jumped straight forward to the next game, ignoring, of course, um, the other team in this game, which is Newcastle. Um, interesting looking at these recent results for Newcastle. Newcastle have absolutely rocketed up the league um, when it, it almost feels weird to think that they were in a relegation battle not that long ago, because they're now just definitely safe. Uh, had a fantastic start to life under Eddie Howe and the nation of Saudi Arabia. Um, but they've had three straight losses now, so plenty of work still needs to be done.
0: Yeah, it does, isn't it? It's funny how, yeah, a couple of months ago, if if you said they would be nine points clear of the relegation zone, but they've lost the last three games, you go, huh? Yeah, um, how's, how's that happened? <laughs> but that that's exactly what has happened. And, yeah, I mean, I don't think to be honest with you I actually don't think any of the bottom five or six teams are safe yet um and that might be you know placing too much confidence in in Sean Dyche but um yeah I, I just feel like he's got a couple of games in hand um and and I would back that man to the moon um but yeah I think I think they're probably pretty safe aren't they
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I also think that if anyone could pull it out of the bag, it's going to be Daichi, but I think that it'll be, if anyone, it'll be at Everton's expense, not Newcastle's. I think Newcastle, they've struggled a little bit with the loss of Kieran Tierney, and Chris Wood has not had the impact that they would have hoped he has. I think he's played like 11 games for them and scored one goal, uh, which is not what you would have wanted, although it has, you know arguably weakened Burnley a little bit because although Val cost I do think is the better player um it's taken them a little bit of ties. but he's only scored one goal as well in that time so it's definitely taken him some time to get into gear um I think if anything this is kind of the worrying thing the most worrying thing for non-Newcastle fans <laughs> that could have happened because for them to have like safety but a turbulent safety if they just kept like bashing out games. You know they had like I think it was like back to back two ones or something where they just kept winning games really resiliently and you went, This is a team on the up, but maybe there's a ceiling but you could maybe look at the owners going, Ah, we stayed up and we you know we finished fourteenth, whatever. If they stay up but they finish like sixteenth, it's a big summer. It's a big summer incoming, hundred percent confirmed.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um I mean which is not necessarily a bad thing. I guess the the only thing will be that, you know, if if they had this amazing run and then taper off at the end they're not going to have much momentum going into the new season and probably a little bit of the shine will have will have come off it by then despite the fact that they should still think of it as a very impressive you know end half of the season
1: I mean, what I hope happens, because they do have, you know, we've talked a little bit about run-ins here, and they've just lost, obviously, 5-1 to Spurs, which suggests that against the big teams who can really pull out the best games, they are still massively lacking. The next couple of games they've got are Wolves, Leicester City, and Crystal Palace, all at St. James's Park, three home games in a row, which is strange, Um, and then Norwich away. So, you know, four games there that you would imagine some combination of wins and draws, and maybe a loss at home to Wolves, but I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't drop too many points there. But then they've got back-to-back-to-back to back to back, Liverpool, Manchester City, and Arsenal uh, before, of course, a final game-week showdown against Burnley. Those are three tough fixtures to to, to be playing, uh, even if two of them are at home. Liverpool and Manchester City, certainly, you would almost guarantee now are going to be losses. And Arsenal, you know, are Arsenal. Um... So, are always capable of dropping two points, or indeed all three. But to have those three teams back to back, the players are going to be exhausted by the time they play Arsenal, and it might be enough for for Arsenal to just walk by them out of the form.
0: Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, Burnley Burnley have a little bit of an easier run in, so that could be interesting. Um, but yeah, I think I think they're uh, they're they're pretty safe.
1: I think it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it depends a lot of it what happens in, in, in tomorrow evening's game of Burnley versus Everton, which is uh, you know such a blockbuster game uh, for all the wrong reasons. I, I think it's funny. I heard someone talking today about how there's like this weird phenomenon of like I don't really have any strong feelings for or against Everton, really. Um, like they're an old Premier League club, so I guess I like them being in the league for that reason. Um, but as soon as they started to look like they were going to go down, and I'm sorry before I say this, Everton fans, I had this sort of morbid, almost like, oh, yeah, that'd be crazy. I want it to happen now. Um, and I've heard someone what talk about like it a, today. Like a like,
0: spin the chaos wheel kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was like how crazy it would be. And also, like, if Everton were in the championship... I would actually watch a lot more championship football. It'd be really interesting to watch Everton play in the championship um, and see, like, if they struggled a lot, if they were just absolutely bashing people Fulham style and Norwich style, or if it was actually not as easy as it looks. Um, And also because there would be a lot of, you know, players who would go elsewhere. We might get to see Richarlison elsewhere. We might get to see uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin elsewhere. Uh, They have a really, really good squad that will no doubt be picked clean. Um, So there is a little morbid part of me that every time I see Everton play, I'm like, do it, lose.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. What you mean I agree with you that yeah, part of me wants to see it happen. I do like Everton as a club. I always kind of have. i not not. I wouldn't just call them a soft spot team. I just, you know, their start of last season under Ancelotti was quite exciting. Um, I quite like a few of their players. Um, I wouldn't mind them bit- staying up. But then I also really like Sean Dyche. So.
1: By the you exact know. same token, when they won that, that, that start you saying when they won four the first four games of the season, I was also like, Do it, win the league because I was like, that would be so interesting yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's different from the usual. So I, I I don't ever start at neutral wanting Everton to do well or poorly. It's just when someone hits the swing that hard, you're like, Yeah, go the whole way.
0: You know, it's like that, um some people just want to watch the world burn. Is your is that what was like some people want to watch the world spin faster? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. You just just see see what take it to its natural conclusion and just sort of like, you know, something crazy happens, okay, but I want it to like feel like a full season and have like a full crazy thing of, you know, you know, Burnley beating Manchester City or whatever it is.
0: It's definitely it definitely feels quite boring and quite teasing to to have all of these like, oh, could this happen and then it doesn't.
1: Yeah. Also, just because I feel like if Everton, this is the other the other sort of reason that's like specific to to me, and I feel like maybe a bit you as well, is like if Everton have this whole sort of like flirt with death and play some of the worst football in the league and just do, don't score goals ever, but then stay up anyway, it kind of invalidates every time someone goes, "Oh well, Everton are too big to down, too big to go down." Oh no, but I can't say that because anyone can go down. It they almost kind of need to go down so that everyone who said that can feel vindicated
0: (laughs) what's so like you think whether or not everton get get relegated will confirm whether or not the premier league is is actually fully competitive
1: well yeah not not, i'm not that deep but it's just like you know every time someone goes oh everton couldn't go down they're too big if they now stay up despite because they have had maybe the worst form in the league over the last couple of months if they still stay up despite that it does lend a little bit of credence to the idea that they are too big to go down
0: it could well be. Um, I mean, they are one of the one of the originals, aren't they? One of the few that have never been relegated.
1: No, mm-hmm. yes, certainly. So yeah, it, it, it will just be interesting. Um, but not to stick too much on Everton, uh, although I'm sure we'll be talking about them next episode a bunch, no matter what the result against Burnley. Let's look at Crystal Palace three, Arsenal nil a really interesting game for a lot of reasons, partly because I kind of feel like, and this is completely anecdotal, I do not have the evidence to back this up, but it's just something I, I feel in my heart and I can think of a couple of examples. It just feels to me like Crystal Palace are like the ultimate dream killer side, that they sort of like, they almost get a power up every time the team they're playing against is on the cusp of something. If the team they're playing against is like just about to get out of the relegation zone or the team they're playing about is just about to break into the top four, or if the team they're you know, playing against is just about to go top of the league or, or go clear, it seems like Crystal Palace get like a little, a little buff that they, they suddenly become much better, especially at Selhurst Park.
0: I know what you mean, and yeah, this Arsenal one's a good example Drawing nil-nil with City when City were on a quite good run of form. Beating Wolves when they had won a couple of games in a row. I I definitely,
1: yeah, I I hear you. I hear you. It just, it just feels like that's what they what they're really good at but I think Crystal Palace despite you know even when they don't necessarily have that buff have looked really good this season especially when you consider what they've looked like you know last season and uh, over the last couple of years when you think about you know the Hodgson years the, the DeBoer years they've had some really really bad sides that have played some really really bad football and now they've been a little up and down a little bit in and out um as you know they always will be if you're not a team with enormous you know financial resources but for the most part they've looked really good they've built a lot of Things that are going to look good for next season. The only big but there being that Conor Gallagher has been the best player that they've had by miles and has almost, in a weird way, played too well. Because if he'd played sort of like quite well and done like maybe 75% of what he'd done, I think Crystal Palace still would have won a lot of the games they'd won, but maybe Chelsea would have gone. Um, yeah, you know what, 35 million. Whereas now, I think every single person at Chelsea Football Club, uh, well, who's not who's not going to lose their job in the next few months, is going, first order of business is get Conor Gallagher back.
0: Yeah, kind of like, maybe like a Ruben Loftus-Cheek, where they go, okay, you had a good time. We're not sure if you're going to make it back into the squad. We'll see what happens. Whereas now, it's like, you're 100% back in.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, you could have seen Conor Gallagher, if he'd played a little bit less well, doing what Tammy Abraham has done, sort of them letting him go, maybe putting a buyback clause in his contract, and then later next season going, oh my God, this guy really is top. He should have just saved it.
0: Well, I mean, not to get too kind of distracted into this line of questioning, but um, an interesting thing came out of the international break, which was Gareth Southgate saying that Conor Gallagher played very well, but that he had to make a tactical switch because he felt like um, Gallagher playing alongside Mount left England vulnerable.
1: Yeah, definitely very interesting, as you know as well. And it's going to be a bit of a head scratcher for Thomas Tuchel next season, or indeed whoever Chelsea's manager is at that point, because the revolving door is ruthless. Um, you know, you look at those two players, and they don't really fit together in a midfield who gets the axe do you go for you know the shiny new toy who to be fair at the moment looks amazing and has probably been one of the players of the season or do you go for the guy who has not razzled or dazzled this season but was really good last season and has you know he's been around for a little bit longer he's been through some of the harder times as well with with Lampard for example do you throw that all away for a player who's had one really really good season albeit you know as, as good as he's been um or do you stick with what you know
0: I mean, I kind of wanted to just put it as this is what Gareth Southgate said. Obviously, he knows more about football than I do. I do feel like they're both quite versatile players and you could fit them into the same squad if you wanted. I mean, Mount can play on the left and at the same time, Gallagher could probably play in defensive midfield.
1: Yeah, I, th- yeah I, th- I think that is true, to be fair. They, they can both play all-, all over the place. But I think in terms of, like, you know, uh, take a step back just away from Mason Mount and look at Chelsea's wider squad, it's not like Chelsea has a dearth of midfielders. Someone's going to have to be let go there. And maybe it's as simple as someone like Ruben Loftus-Cheek, but then what does that mean for Conor Gallagher? Is he going to be filling that role exactly and playing the odd game? He's not going to be happy with that. So who of that, you know, Jorginho and Kante and Mount and uh, and uh, Kovacic is going to... Miss out for for Conor Gallagher.
0: Well, it's you know here's another cliche. It's the it's the problem that every manager wants to have.
1: It, it is indeed, unless Conor Gallagher himself looks at that ahead of time and goes, "Am I going to unseat Kante? Probably not. Jorginho? Probably not. Mount of a Probably not. I will try and push for a move." So it's not the problem the manager wants then.
0: Yeah, that's true. I always feel like we should start playing a cliche bingo when we do these podcasts.
1: <laughs> I think we'd be over very very quickly uh, but no no re- really good from Crystal Palace a 3-0 win um, you know and a really really good performance uh, and, and I think they just they just looked good all over the pitch uh, Mateta has been really good coming in this season he's been in and out I mean he's only scored four goals but he's only started eight games so I, I think he's been a pretty solid signing he's 24 years old he's looking like he could continue improving um, and, and do you know that Tyreek Mitchell this is something I read as well he hasn't been booked yet this season Huh? Isn't that I did weird? He's started thirty games. He hasn't he hasn't had a, a single yellow card. I read that yesterday before the Arsenal game, and I was like, huh? Okay. Well, maybe he'll get booked today against. Oh no, it's Bukayo Saka. You can kick him in the in the head, and you will get booked. Um, but <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no. It's I, a crazy statistic that to to be playing as a defender for a full season and not get booked. Yet,
0: anyway. Fair play. That that is surprising. Did he get booked in the international break?
1: uh i could not tell you that off the top of my head but uh for palace this season he has not yet been booked
0: there you go which is is kind of crazy didn't
1: know that um but looking at the other team in this uh the team that lost 3-0 i mean with Arsenal, it's one of those things on the one hand there's a lot to dissect and there's a lot to look at statistically as why this went wrong and what positions were lacking and why this has been coming for a long time with the refusal to to sort of buy players in january on the other hand you could just go in the much same way that you could look at the Chelsea-Brenford thing and go, is this a you know, signifier or something or is this just uh, one of those free things? Arsenal do love to do this every now and again. Every single time they start to put together a little bit of form and a little run and the fans get really overexcited about themselves and start going, oh yeah, you know, Superman Cartet's going to win us the Champions League. Oh. They then drop an absolute zero out of 10. Um, and, and it almost kind of felt like I, I was, you know, on Twitter over the course of the weekend and um you know Chelsea lost that game to Brentford and there were loads of like rival fans giving it the big one and then United fans drew with Leicester and like still loads but obviously now not United fans like giving it the big one and then Spurs beat um uh Especially Newcastle five one, loads of Arsenal fans were like, "That's no problem, we're going to do it." You know, we're super mere Arteta side, we're going to do it. And I was just like, "This is setting it up too perfectly." The, the, there's definitely going to be a bad result against Crystal Palace. And I didn't think it was necessarily going to be three <laughs> 0 did, did
0: you see it coming?
1: Yeah, like, I thought it was going to be like a two one loss or something. I was like, "You're getting a little bit too big for your boots here," you know, because Chelsea have sort of fucked up, and and United have had not a great game against Leicester, and we're sort of well, I mean, we can talk about that in a minute on its own, but. Arsenal fans were just getting really, really excited on the timeline with a game that they had yet to play, and I was like, "Guys, you, can you not see this coming? You are setting yourself up for the classic Arsenal performance uh, by doing this."
0: I love that. Just like, just terrified of the narrative potential of of uh, the the build
1: up. Yeah, absolutely. I I really did uh, did think that was going to happen. But I mean, there are a lot of reasons for this. The squad looks really, really tired. Obviously, a lot of these players have played uh, over the international break. Kieran Tierney, for example, was one big loss. He played 180 minutes, I think it was. So two games um, for Scotland over the international break, and then got a knee injury. And we found out today that he is out for the rest of the season. Now, there's an aspect of that that's bad luck, because, you know, a player playing both full games for their country is not really something you can account for, but it's something you can see coming, and we've known for a while that Tavares is not quite at the level, Cedric's not quite at the level, and Kety is not quite at the level, but they still refused to buy a single player in the January window, and instead, not only did that, but sold, loaned, or released players, um... So I have kind of limited sympathy for that. A lot of Arsenal fans were saying, like, we would not have conceded either of those first two goals if Tierney was playing. And I think that's probably true. But at the same time, it's not like you can expect Kieran Tierney to be fit forever. You kind of got to bolster the rest of the squad with players that are good enough. Another one is, like, Cedric is... He has his good games, or his okay games, but he's always good until he's not. He always has the ability to sort of, like, drop a complete clanger. And I look at games like this, and I go... Why did you let go of AZ Maitland Niles again? I mean, even looking at Tavares, for example, Cedric, one of the things he has been good at is sort of being able to play on the right and the left. I think Cedric at left back and AZ Maitland Niles at right back would have been way more effective at shutting down Crystal Palace in this game than playing Nuno Tavares at left back, who was so badly got hooked at half time. I think, I'm pretty sure, for the second time this season, on two different occasions this season, he started and played so badly he's been taken off at half time, which is, I don't know if he's the only player that's ever happened to, but it's, it's definitely going to be a small group of players that have been hooked at half time twice in the same season.
0: It's not a good statistic. It's not, uh, it's not the one that you want on your Guinness Book of World Records profile. Um, But uh, yeah, I agree with you that Kieran Tierney um, has just been overused, really. I mean, um, I was looking at his, uh, his game history on who scored and of the last 19 games, he's played 90 minutes in 16 of them.
1: Yeah, exactly. But he barely gets a rest. But so you, you know this going into the down your window. You don't buy anyone. You can't then complain if that causes you to miss out on top four.
0: There you go. And this is a really good example. It's almost two on the nose, which is that, you know, they haven't got someone that can come in and immediately replace him and be as good as him. And so they overwork him and they don't buy and then he gets injured. That's what happens.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even the players that aren't yet injured, you know, Smith Rowe looked really out of sorts. Saka didn't look anywhere near his best. Martinelli, I thought, was, uh, ironically, the, the player who looked best for Arsenal coming on at half time for Nuno Tavares. And he sort of championed Arsenal's one 15-minute period where they looked half-decent. But then didn't he sort of got overwhelmed because everyone else was knackered. And you sort of looked there and you went, why did he not start? He's been in really good form. It's just one of those weird managerial decisions just to drop him for seemingly no reason, I guess, like... You know, he was over with Brazil, but I don't think he played that much. So it, it just seems very, very weird uh, to, to do that. Another stat it's, that I read, sorry. sorry, another interesting stat that I read, uh, and I would need to go through the check, but I, I, I heard that it has been 18 hours of Premier League football since Lacazette scored from open play, um, which is just insane. I mean, to have that, it wouldn't have been 18 That's at the time.
0: That's not true. That's it crazy. Have,
1: yeah, it, it's insane, right? Um, but even if it was sort of like 14 hours back in January, to look at that and go, not only are we not going to buy a striker, we're going to release Abamyang," it's insane. And for what it's worth, I and mean, we've discussed this, I think the Abamyang situation has probably worked out best for all parties, but to not buy any striker as a replacement, when you know that the rest of your goal scorers are, you've loaned out Foller and Balogun, um, Eddie and Ketty just isn't good enough, and Lacazette at that point hasn't scored in whatever it is, 10 to 14 hours, <laughs> to not sign a striker seems blockheaders. <laughs>
0: You can't really blame Arteta at that point, can you?
1: Well, unless you know, it depends how much of a hand he has in these signing things. You, you know, you never know the full inner workings of the club, but someone at that club, whether it is Arteta or whether it's Edu, who is sort of the director of football, sort of transfer guys, someone is just not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. And if that person is still at the club for the next season, the next season, the next season, you can expect Arsenal to keep doing the same. So you've got to cut it. whoever it is that's made that decision should be fired. You you can't if you're constantly banging on about building something and building a you know a project you can't just skip a window that's insane you get two of them a season you can't just skip one when you're sensibly you so maybe you can do that if you're city or or, or, if, or if you're Liverpool even then not really but to to do that when you're an Arsenal when you're still not even locked in as fourth place is I think the only word for it is arrogant really
0: it is arrogant and I I wonder if. You know that, as you mentioned, that decision to to not start Martinelli was also a bit a bit of arrogance. I wonder if Arteta thought, okay, what I want is Martinelli to come on off the bench and to prove to be the difference maker at a stalemate, and not give enough credit to Palace to not leave it at a stalemate with Martinelli off the pitch.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these very weird decisions that you really can't understand the logic behind it. Some some bizarre decisions do show their logic over time. Like, for example, signing Aaron Ramsdale looked like a really illogical decision to... I mean, a few eagle-eyed people sort of said, oh, well, there's underlying stats and blah, blah, blah. But I think the vast majority of the football community looked at the signings of, for example, him and to a slightly lesser extent, Ben White, and went, these are some shocking signings. Uh, But they've been proven to be good signings in the long term. To not sign anyone, I don't see any way that that gets proven to be some sort of genius move.
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, they yeah, I mean, you know, Arsenal could well turn it around um immediately and bounce back, but based on you know the the more recent kind of five ten years history of Arsenal, it might well be that that's you know their flash in the pan gone again, and it'll be another month perhaps before they can find it again. By which time it'll kind of be the end of the season.
1: It'll be the end of the season and, you know, the way this goes is that if they don't finish top four and they're not playing Champions League football next season, they won't be able to sign a certain class of player in the in the summer window, which will mean they're slightly underperform next season. And then eventually, I think the real shame with Arsenal is they do have a couple of players now, I'm thinking specifically of uh, that sort of young front four of Erdogan, Martinelli, Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe who I think, probably not all of them, but at least one or two of them could actually be world-class players in the making. But if you're a player like that, and you spend two or three seasons without winning a trophy, and everyone around you is going, you should be winning the highest honours, eventually you're going to go, well, I'm not going to stick around. And I think Arsenal, if they persist with this bizarre policy of not improving when they need to improve more than everyone else at, at the same sort of size of club they're just going to lose those players and then you're in an even worse position before because you might go oh, okay now we're going to buy a striker but then it's like okay you've lost martin urdegaard and Bakayo sack has gone to city or emil smith Rowe has gone to liverpool or whatever and you've lost you know the the generational talents that have sort of come out of nowhere
0: yeah i agree it's going to be um It could well be another, you know, just another turn of the the cycle, Um, at which point could well be another four or five years before Arsenal look like they are going to be putting together something exciting again.
1: You you really only have when you're, you know, Edu, there's only a couple of months. You, You can do your research the rest of the year and sort of do your sort of observing the stats, actually pulling the trigger on deals and making approaches. You've only got two periods of the year where you've got to... Like you're basically almost as lazy as Santa Claus. You just got to work in a very small like period of time. Don't go on holiday in those bits. <laughs> don't 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 very take your lunch break.
0: Less lazy than Santa Claus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like Santa. Don't take your lunch break. Don't take your holiday time on the twenty fifth. And Edu, don't take your holiday time on in January, man. You, you can't do that. We see it all the time, don't we? We you really know, do.
0: You you failed to to buy someone in January. Liverpool did it last year, and you get punished for it.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, Wrapping us up with some action from outside of the Premier League. Just a quick flash on this one, because there were some really interesting groups coming out of this. We, of course, had the World Cup draw on uh, Friday of last week, um, which is a very exciting time, getting a little bit of a look into what the tournament in November is going to look like, what some of the starting games are going to look like, and some of the big matchups that we can look forward to. Um, England, for example, had a very exciting group, where they'll be playing the USA... uh, uh, Iran, and one of Scotland, Wales, and Ukraine, whoever goes through those uh, those playoff groups. A very exciting group for a lot of reasons, but a really political group as well.
0: <laughs> very, very much so, yeah. Um, any one of those three that wins, Scotland, Wales, or Ukraine, there'll be a narrative around that, obviously.
1: Absolutely, there'll be some sort of narrative, and it's like England, if like Scotland or Wales go through, it's like England's been at war with all of them.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So, 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 we're gonna, we're gonna be, you know, maybe justly so battered by everyone else for, for, for being the, uh, the colonial overlords and get whipped to out of the fair, group.
0: That would be a great piece of useless trivia. Has there ever been a World Cup group in which we haven't, you know, tried to invade one of the countries?
1: That's a good point. <laughs> and I'd say off the top of my head, probably not. I mean, uh, my, the, my
0: instinct is no.
1: What, what was the one? No, there was. Um, Costa Rica, Uruguay, and Italy was one, wasn't it?
0: Do you know what? I'm going to look into this. This will be my piece of useless trivia next week.
1: I'm going to say, off. The, well, please do. I'm going to say off the top of my head, who, who was the fourth team that that year that we had Costa Rica, Italy, and England in a group? Was the fourth team Uruguay?
0: England, feel, Costa Rica,
1: You know, in, in 2014, Italy, the one in Brazil.
0: And Uruguay, I, the Brazil, Brazil World Cup.
1: Yeah, I feel like maybe it was Uruguay. I don't know off the
0: top of my head,
1: you know. My, my, my brain's failing me. Anyway, um, the one the one that Costa Rica topped the group, and it was like really weird that they managed to do that. Was it Uruguay? I feel like it wasn't. Maybe a team with the blue and white flag. Anyway, that's besides the point. A really interesting group for England. Um, some other particularly spicy groups. Uh, the ones that I am the most excited about are Group F, uh, which has Belgium, Canada, Morocco, and Croatia. I really like that because it's sort of like it's four teams that are not quite in the tier of like your France's and your Spain's and your and your Italy's, even though Italy aren't in the tournament, but like they're not sort of like the big, big boys. They're sort of like almost that rung below, sort of like, you know how um you have the brick economies? These are almost sort of like the brick nations. And I know Belgium have been number one for ages, but like any real football fan knows they shouldn't have been because they've won dick all. Um, but looking at all these teams, like all of these teams, <laughs> what, uh, unfair?
0: No, no, I just like the way you said it.
1: <laughs> um but uh but no I, th- I think that's a really interesting one canada of course have this really exciting young team haven't been in the world cup for ages and have a really sort of like vibrant exciting i think their average age when they played against uh the u.s and won was something like 24 or something and it was only brought up by like one or two much older players except like a ton of 19 year olds um morocco always have a ton of really interesting players croatia um will have a lot of players who are trying to get the the last bit of marrow out of their careers um Group E is another one that's really interesting, uh, with Spain, Germany, Japan, and one of uh, New Zealand and Costa Rica, whoever wins that playoff, another really exciting side, obviously, Spain and Germany alone is enough to get uh, everyone's hair standing up on the back of their neck. But um, Japan as well, often a really sort of unknown quantity that perform really well. And even New Zealand or Costa Rica, New Zealand, don't know what to expect. Costa Rica as we mentioned, last time they played at a World Cup, I don't think they played at 2018, um, but at 2014, they uh, were sort of considered the minnows and ended up topping their group.
0: Yeah, some some real exciting games, and I can feel it bubbling up. The anticipation is starting to get to me a little bit, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's starting to get exciting, and it's... I I don't know how I'm going to feel about, you know, even ignoring all of the other reasons for concern around a World Cup in Qatar, uh, it's going to be interesting watching a World Cup in winter. I don't know how I'm going to feel about that. There's a part of me that's like, that's going to be terrible because uh, some of my fondest memories are like walking from my house to like a tube station or a friend's house, you know, choosing to go to someone else's place. Or to like a bar or something, like and the in, sun in is the shining, sun. Yeah, and yeah. I'm listening to three lions and I'm like probably a little bit drunk already, and those are sort of the days. Whereas this is gonna be, you know, less of that if I'm sort of scurrying to one place or another, it's gonna be in the cold. But then maybe there's gonna be something nice about sort of like, maybe I'll be under a blanket, maybe I'll have a mould wine. Um, maybe it'll be a different Whoa. kind of entertaining. Who who knows?
0: Mold wine and watch England get knocked out. I don't know how I feel about that.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Obviously, the, the World Cup is—you know—it's great because it's not just you. Obviously, support the team that you support, but all the games are good. So it might be nice to just have like one really cold day in where there's like because it's such a compact World Cup as well. There's so many games. If like if I'm watching like seven games in a day and I just sit by my TV and my fire and I'm watching like a ton of games and it's really cold outside and I'm really warm, that, that I could see that being nice uh, potentially. But we'll, we'll we'll have to wait and see.
0: I guess that's fair. We'll be we'll be powered by the fire in our hearts um, to get through the winter. I mean, the interesting part as well, it's like we're pretty much the only league that actually plays through winter anyway. So is that going to give us an advantage?
1: I'll take it. It, 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 it could do. It really could do. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Although that would suggest that, you know, everyone who plays in the Premier League is English, which is, of course, far from the case.
0: That's true. That's true. But I think, you know... It's we've got the highest percentage of our uh, of our national team playing in the Premier League.
1: That's that's true. That's certainly true. <laughs>
0: um good. Well, it's uh you know, I think this is a, a good place to stop, which is, you know, stuff to look forward to this weekend, in the coming month, and also in December.
1: Uh indeed, yeah, down in uh, November and December, I believe. Um, seeing how that goes. Um but yeah, definitely a good place to wrap it up. Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much, and
0: thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time.
1: Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.